you know, it's been a it's been a huge week in kicking down some of the devil's gates here at Hills. We've had eight young people get baptized. Come on. We've had a bunch of men go into a prison and proclaim the gospel. Come on. Seeing people set free. We had a Lobethal church plant worship night last night about to take new ground. God is on the move doing wonderful things and we just need to continue to worship him and come before him and fall on our face before him, give him all the glory and all the praise. But he's not just on the move in organised activities through this church, ministries through this church, but he's on the move in people's lives. I've asked Andrew Bukey to come. He's going to share, just bring a testimony because testimonies are awesome. He's going to bring a testimony of some of the things that God is doing. Let's welcome Andrew. And he's going to lead us in prayer after that. G'day. Uh, I'm a teacher in the public school sector. And um, you're not really allowed to openly tell people about the gospel as part of your role. Anyway, I've got a, a class last semester, which just ended a week ago. And a girl was starting to wear a whole lot of crystals and starting to have things like evil eyes and different things on her. So I said, what's the deal with your crystals? And, um, you know, the evil eye you're wearing and that. And she started to share that, oh, she's getting into crystals and, you know, she's starting to get into witchcraft and stuff. So about like a week later, this conversation's still going on a little bit. And, you know, she's starting to go, oh, yeah, I'm not really into black magic, but, you know, the white stuff's pretty safe. And as it's going on, um, I'm just starting to feel a, a real prompting to pray for this girl. So there's uh, a week left of the, um, of the semester before I won't have this girl for the rest of the year as my student. And, um, yeah, so I start to pray that there'll be an opportunity to open up. And I start to get some brothers in Christ to pray with me for this girl. Uh, and one week left, you know, the first double lesson comes, the second lesson um, comes, and nothing's happened, and uh, still praying. And the very last lesson, uh, which was on a Friday, the very last lesson, um, the conversation starts to open again. And she asks me, well, what do I believe? And therefore, I was able to tell her about, I believe in one God, you know, the God Almighty. I believe um, that, you know, all this sort of stuff, which was really cool. Um, and also to read the Bible. If you want to know about real power, read the Bible because you're seeking power. Um, but the, all that power is influenced by another power that just plays you, right? So uh, it was a great opportunity. And the Lord answered that prayer. And he stirred me to pray. And he stirred my brothers to pray with me. I want to encourage all of you here that the, this is an awesome um, example which just encouraged me so much that God hears our prayer. We pray in faith as we are called to, and he will answer. There's nothing that's not aligned in Scripture uh, about praying that you'll be able to share with someone. So in your workplace or, in, or your mates or whatever it is, pray for them. Get your mates to pray uh, with you and ask the Lord, to, who do you want me to pray for? Um, you know, that uh, he, he would actually put someone on your heart to pray for. So, yeah, awesome. Praise the Lord. I got to share with that girl. She's, yeah, it's good. So we're going to do that right now. Let's stand to our feet. We're going to pray. Uh, an opportunity for wherever you're at, 
whoever's on your heart right now, Andrew's going to lead us in some prayer. As we do that, let's pray for those people who the Lord's placed upon our heart. If there's someone right next to you, just put your hand out, put your hand on their shoulder and pray for them. uh, And let's go for it. Well, Heavenly Father, right now, we just ask you that over the next week, or right today, that you would lay someone on our hearts that you want to break into their world, that we would have the boldness to share, that we would start letting you lead us in our prayers for that person, and we would let you speak, Lord God. We pray that you would start to transform our work and our, our world so we would look out and see who you want to touch, Lord God. We pray that we would start to phone each other and encourage each other and ask each other to pray for this person in our lives and who we want to, who they want us to pray for in their lives. Lord, may you get the glory and may your kingdom grow. May it be on earth as it is in heaven for your glory, that your name will be lifted high in Jesus' name. We pray as your family. Hallelujah. Amen. Awesome. Thank you so much. Let's give Andrew a round of applause. Thank you, brother. Thank you, Lord, for all that you are doing and take the seeds that have been sown this week in people's hearts and bring a harvest. Amen. So we're in a series called The Table. We're looking at tables in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and we're looking at how Christ at his table, his glorious table, fulfills uh everything that has been spoken. And I had this image in my, my mind all week around, you know the magic eye books? Does anyone remember the magic eye books that you used to look at? Let's put one of those pictures up there. So you used to be able to get these books which were like this, and it was just page after page. And what you'd do is you'd, you'd look at it, and to, to the eye, it just looks like an image, just a random image. And sometimes when we read the Bible, it's a bit like that. You just read a story, you think, great story, keep on going. But actually, so much of Scripture is like, if you look deeply enough and you spend enough time thinking about it, there's this greater reality that appears beneath it. And so the idea of this is you stare at this thing, and as you stare at it, sometimes you've forced yourself to go cross-eyed for a bit, or you like get it right up in your face and you slowly bring it back. I don't know what trick you used to have, but there's this idea is as you stare long enough, you start to see this 3D image that's actually embedded in the image. Does that make sense? So have a crack. What do you see? This is hilarious looking out, seeing people's faces, right? Some people are like this. Can anyone see anything embedded within this? Not hidden, just embedded, just the deeper reality. What? No, <laughs> a fish. Anyone? No, you probably need to get close. Can we put the image up? So this is what you should see. And I must confess, I probably spent a little bit too long on MagicEye.com this week, just <laughs> as I was looking at this. But th- so that is what is actually hidden within the other thing. If you look close enough, if you look deeply enough, all of a sudden this beautiful image just pops out, hidden within, within the, you know, the facade. And this is what we see in Scripture. So often there's so many stories that we've just read, that we've just cruised over before, and we miss the meaning. 
But we always talk about in this church that the Bible is a unified story that points to Christ. That when you look from Genesis through to Revelation over and over again, it is God saying, look at Jesus, look at Jesus, look at Jesus. Look, there he is. He's right there. He's right there. And then once you've seen that in the image, it's like you can't see anything else. And same is true with Scripture. When we read it through that understanding that God's trying to reveal Christ to us, It just comes alive. And my assignment, you can get rid of that one now. My assignment this morning is to look at what is probably an obscure passage of Scripture for most initial readings. It seems like this strange little passage embedded within 2 Samuel. But to to just pray that as we look at it, the Holy Spirit is going to take this word and He is going to illuminate this incredible picture of Christ and what He has done for His church, what He's done for His bride, for His people, that we might truly know freedom. Amen? So we're going to the, the book of 2 Samuel. I say 2 Samuel because that's the grammatically correct way of pronouncing it, as my old friend always said. 2 Samuel, the ninth chapter is where we start. And it's a story about a guy called King David, who if you've been in church for a little bit, you've probably heard of King David. And a story about someone who you may not have heard about, a cripple named Mephibosheth. Everyone say Mephibosheth. Say it three times as fast as you can. It's a really fun thing to do. We tried that with our kids last night. It was hilarious. Mephibosheth. David and Mephibosheth. But the story in order to understand 2 Samuel 9, we have to go back and we have to look at 1 Samuel. We've got to look at from basically from chapter sort of 17 onwards. And you need to understand that this same King David was the same boy who slew a giant. He was the same boy who rocked up. Israel was at war with Palestine and there was, uh, Israel was trembling in fear because the great giant Goliath was there, you know, calling them to battle. No one wanted to fight him. They were all terrified. And David comes along and he's like, what are you all so scared about? We serve the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Oh, I love that passage so much. He's like, I'll go and fight him. And they try and put the, their armor on. He's like, I can't wear this. I've got to be me. I've got to be who God's called me to be and created me to be. And all I got is five stones in my pocket. And the giant falls down dead. And all of a sudden, David garners all this acclaim and fame. It says that the women started singing a song. Saul was the king of Israel. Saul was head and shoulders above everyone else. He was a good-looking unit, right? He was charismatic. People loved him. And then all of a sudden, now David's in the picture. And they used to sing this song. It says, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And what we begin from this moment on is we begin to see jealousy take root in Saul's heart. And jealousy becomes bitterness. Bitterness becomes anger. Anger becomes rage. And he then spends the rest of his life in this relentless pursuit to hunt down and murder David. And so in the early days of this story, David obviously has a spear thrown at him and he goes to Jonathan, who happens to be Saul's son, the rightful heir to the throne. Yeah, when Saul dies, the son assumes the throne. So Jonathan's the rightful heir to the throne. David comes to Jonathan. He's like, bro, your dad is trying to kill me. And Jonathan says to him, well, why would he do that? That's stupid. He's not going to do that. You're like his general. You're winning battles for him. No, no, he, he loves you. You're favoured. Don't stress. And David's like, I'm telling you, man, he's out to get me. And they go back and forth a bit. And in the end, they come up with this plot. 
and they have this, this a, a feast and they decide that David won't come to the feast. And Jonathan will say to Saul, when Saul says, where's David? He'll tell him he's gone somewhere else. And the, the, the trigger was, if Saul gets mad, Jonathan will know that Saul's out to get David. And he'll send word to David and say, you've got to flee. You've got to get out of here. But if Saul doesn't get mad, then they'll know that actually Saul's not trying to kill David and all is A-OK and David can come back to the palace. Of course, what happens? Saul goes raging. Jonathan goes to David and sends word. And this is such an interesting passage of Scripture because it, you'll see it in 1 Samuel chapter, uh, chapter 20. David and Jonathan, these best mates, Jonathan, the rightful heir to the throne, David, the anointed heir to the throne, or there's something on that. And this is what happens from verse 13, the end of this agreement. But if my father intends to harm you, may the Lord deal with Jonathan. Love that he talks about himself in the third person. Be it ever so severely if I do not let you know and send you away in peace. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. But show me unfailing kindness. That phrase, unfailing kindness, is a Hebrew word. That word is chesed. Everyone say chesed. Put a bit of spit in it. Chesed. And the NIV translates it unfailing kindness. If it was in Greek, if it was New Testament, the word would be agape, which is perhaps something we understand if you've been in church for a bit. It means unmerited, abundant favour unmerited, abundant favour, love, sacrificial love at the cost of anything. Show me agape, show me chesed. Whatever happens to me, show me chesed like the Lord's chesed as long as I live so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, may the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. This is so interesting. What Jonathan is doing here is he is saying, I know I'm the rightful heir to the throne, but I know you're God's man. I know that a day is coming when you will be the one seated on the throne. I know a day is coming when my father will be done away with. And I know somehow, some way, it's not going to be me who sits upon that throne. It's going to be you. And here's what we have to understand. In this context, in this, in this day and age, if you were someone who ascended to the throne and you were different from the initial bloodline of the king, what did you do? I don't watch Game of Thrones, but I'm sure you probably saw it if any of you watch Game of Thrones on this. What did these kings do? They slaughtered everyone who could possibly come against their rightful reign. So they would go and eliminate the competition. Anyone who had the bloodline of that kingdom, they would eliminate them so that they were established and firm and true. And what Jonathan is saying to David is when God raises you up and he puts you on the throne that you've been anointed for, that I know that you're going to be in, Show me this hesed. Show me this kindness. Do not wipe out my family line. Don't do what all the other kings do. Make a covenant with me, a promise, not just a contract, no, a promise, a covenant love that you will show this unmerited, abundant 
favor and grace and mercy and love to my family. And David says, yes, he makes this covenant. He makes a covenant. And what happens from this point on is David spends literally the next 15 to 16 years of his life on the run. Saul hunts him down over and over and over again. And over and over again, David is given opportunity to kill Saul. One time, Saul is literally going to the toilet doing number twos in a cave. And David's right there and he doesn't kill him. Every opportunity, but he never does. He doesn't touch the Lord's anointed until this moment comes in 1 Samuel, at the end of 1 Samuel, where Saul and Jonathan are both killed in battle. Now, I want you to see something. Over these, 20, uh, over these 11 chapters of Scripture, as Saul is hunting David, he says something fascinating to Saul. He says, who am I that you would come after me? I am a dead dog. Why are you pursuing a dead dog, Saul? I'm nothing. You're the king of Israel. Stop hunting me. You don't need to come against me. I'm not coming against you. It's a phrase he uses with Saul. And Saul just continues to pursue him until Saul and Jonathan eventually die. And then you get to the start of 2 Samuel, just building a foundation here. The start of 2 Samuel, and it's all about David now establishing his throne. It's all about David getting rid of the competition, eliminating those people, whether by his sword or by something else, how God solidifies David on the throne. At the end of chapter 8, we get this picture that David is now secure in his kingship. That the threats are gone, David's secure, he's strong, he's got his mighty men around him. All is well for David in the kingdom as you get to the beginning of 2 Samuel in the ninth chapter, 15 to 16 years after the covenant, David remembers his friend. That's a long time. I forget what I'm doing next week. 15 years he's held this covenant promise and he gets to the start of chapter 9 and he says this, David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show chesed? Everyone say chesed. For Jonathan's sake. 15 years. His throne is established. He's been on the run. He's been in hiding. He's been beaten like he's been straight. If you read some of the stories of what David went through, it's full on. He's been through absolute hell and back. And now he's established on a throne and he says, is there anyone left from the house of Saul? Now, if you're the people in David's entourage and you hear a king say that, what are you thinking? So I can kill him. You're thinking, right, David's out to totally clean slate. It's time to clear house. It's, it's on. Yeah, let's get him. And they're like, God's kindness? Is there anyone to whom I can show chesed for Jonathan's sake? They're like, well, it might be chesed for you. It's probably not chesed for them, champ. God's kindness in eliminating my opposition. So they're like, yeah, let's go and do this. That's, that's the mantra. That's how you would understand this in this time. And so David's like, is there anyone to whom I can do this? And the guys are like, well, there's this guy, Zeba. And Zeba was a servant in Saul's household. So if anyone knows if there's anyone left, it's going to be him. So let's go and get him. So Zeba comes along, comes before David, and David's just like, hey, is there anyone left to whom I can show chesed for Jonathan's sake? And Zeba says this to him. He said, there is still, this is verse, uh, end of verse 3, there is still a son of Jonathan. He's lame in both feet. 
Now, why does he say that? This is where my mind wanders. Why does he say that? Why does Ziba go, yeah, 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 there's a son of Jonathan, but he's lame in both feet? I think what he's doing here is he's saying, hey, David, you're a man of integrity. We love you. You know, you're you're a man after God's own heart. You've done great things. Don't mess with this kid. And his name is Mephibosheth. Don't mess with Mephibosheth. He's not a threat to you. He's lame. He's broken. He's busted. He cannot challenge your right to rule and reign. He cannot rally anyone to come. No one's going to follow this guy because he's just a lame beggar. And it tells us in verse 4, where is he? Ziba answered, he's at the house of Machias, son of Amiel in Lodabar. He's just out in Lodabar. He's no, he's no threat. Don't go after him. And David's like, no, no, I'm going to go after this guy to show Hesed for Jonathan's sake. And it's a fascinating tale because I sit here and say, Mephibosheth, if Jonathan's dead and Saul's dead, who should be king? It's Mephibosheth. He's the grandson of Saul. He's the only son of Jonathan. Mephibosheth is the rightful heir to the throne of Israel. And yet, he's not in Jerusalem. He's in a place called Lodabar, and he's lame. How did he get there? Do you know, Lodabar, the Hebrew word for Lodabar, means place of no pasture. It literally means the desolate place the lonely place, the lost place. Lodabar means the place, it's like, it's like whoop whoop, right? No one cares about it. Only the people who no one cares about goes there. They're irrelevant. And not only is he in Lodabar, the place of loneliness and the place of lostness and the place of brokenness, he's actually lame in both feet. He's lame. Back in the day, if you were lame, that was the curse of God upon your life. You weren't worthy of time. You weren't worthy of attention. They didn't wheel you around in a wheelchair. There was no ramps to bring a disabled person up into a house. You were lost. You were a beggar. You had no hope. The king, the rightful heir to the throne, the kid who should be wearing a crown has been run out of town. The kid who should be king over this nation is lying lame and lost in Lodabar. How does he get there? How does this whole thing unfold? And to get it, you've got to go back a couple of chapters to chapter 4, verse 4. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. Why? Because he was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. He was five years old when his dad and his grandpa was murdered. Five years old, the rightful heir to the throne of Israel at five years old became an orphan. And at five years old, when they heard the news, his nurse picked him up and fled. But as she hurried to leave, he fell and became disabled. Watch this. His name was Mephibosheth. Up until this time, his name was not Mephibosheth. The book of First Chronicles in the ninth chapter tells us that Jonathan had a son and his name was Meribal. Do you know what Meribal means? One who contends with Baal. That means one who will fight against the pagan gods. Jonathan, this phenomenal 
warrior of God, this man of strength, this man of valor, this man of courage, had a son and in his uh, passion, he names his son. He speaks a word over his son. He speaks identity over his son. And he goes, you, my boy, are going to be a man of great courage and strength. You, my boy, are going to be a man who contends with the pagan gods. You, my young son, are going to raise up to be someone of significance. You're going to be someone who sits in a palace and advances the kingdom of God against the powers of the enemy. That's who you are. That's what he named his son. And at five years old, his son's name gets changed from Meribal to Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth means son of shame. Why? Because he got dropped. Friends, as I've been reading this, I cannot help but think, this is such a picture of humanity. This is such a picture of our lives where we feel like we are created in the image of a, of a powerful, loving God. We are created in His image. The Bible says we're created in Christ Jesus to do the good works that He prepared in advance for us to do. We're created to be Meribals, to be contenders for the kingdom. But so many children of God Children born to live in the palace. Children born to be seated with Christ on high. Children born to take up their rightful place in the kingdom of God as co-heirs with Christ. And so many of us are living in Lodabar, lame and broken because someone dropped us. Somewhere along the line, a father who's supposed to love you and care for you and look after you and speak life and health into you, ran away and left you and left a wound that's never been healed. Fatherlessness is one of the biggest issues in our world today. Where young men, particularly young men, but young women, are spending their days searching for identity, wondering why dad didn't love me. We're seeing mums just abandon their families. Dropped by the person who's supposed to love you and care for you the most. We see sickness and illness come and just smash us. Everything's going well. We're happy. Life's good. We're charging along and cancer comes out of nowhere and bam, my life is turned upside down. Seemingly dropped by God himself. I wonder if there's anyone here who's been dropped And you know you were created, as David says in Psalm 23, well, I'm created for green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He guides me in paths of righteousness. You're like, this is who I'm created to be, but I've found myself somehow in Lodabar, a son of shame. What is Lodabar? Lodabar is the place where we go to hide our shame. Lodabar is the veil that we put over our shame so that no one else will see it. Mephibosheth is hiding in Lodabar, so no one knows where he is. No one can find him. No one can see him. No one can look upon his shame and really know who he really is. We see this all the time with us, where we come to church, we put on our Sunday vest and our Sunday smile. We're like, life is great. I'm good. But inside, you're full of shame, and it's just a veil of Lodabar. And the power of God in this passage is that he is about to speak a word into your life saying, it is time to leave Lodabar. It is time to come out of that place of shame and come into the covenant promise of God. Oh, I'm getting ready to preach. 
You see, when you look at this passage, what's about to happen here is there's Mephibosheth in Lodabar, broken, busted, bruised, hiding in the place of no pasture, trying to get away from King David, trying to get away from everyone. And David's like, is there anyone left? And they say, yes, there is. Here's the promise to us in Christ is that God sees you exactly where you're at. You cannot hide your shame from God. God sees everything. He sees everything. And guess what? He loves you. Guess what? He's going to come and he's going to show chesed. Why? It says for Jonathan's sake, because he's a covenant king. Oh, this is a picture of Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's covenant love. God made a covenant with Abraham that in Christ would be a blessing to the world. David made a covenant with Jonathan to bless his family. Do you see it? Jesus is coming. He's come to fulfill his covenant love. We have a covenant king. And because we have a covenant king, he's not okay with us living in Lodabar. He's not okay with us hiding in shame and guilt and being condemned all the time. He says, ah, 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 ah. I'm going to bring you out of Lodabar. You're not created for Lodabar. Come on, somebody. You have not been made for Lodabar. You've got the DNA of a king in you. You're a king's kid. You don't belong there. And so it says that David, I love the King James Version, it said he fetched him. There's a picture there because you don't fetch a human being, you fetch a stick. You fetch something dead. Oh, what a picture of what God has done for us in Christ. The Bible tells me that I was dead in my transgressions and sin. But God, but Christ, come on. And He came and He fetched us. He fetched us from our sin and death. Whether you've had a story, whether you're someone who feels dropped and broken or whether you're just part of humanity that was dropped and broken from the moment Adam took the apple. Do you know what we call that theologically? That moment, we call it the fall. Where humanity was dropped, where humanity was separated from God. I'm a big fan of Eugene Peterson, if anyone else here likes him. And Eugene Peterson wrote a book called The Message. It's not a translation of the Bible, friends. Don't ever call it a translation. It's not. It's a creative account of the Scripture. And if you read it in that context, it's beautiful. And he says this about the moment we were dropped. You know the story of how Adam landed us in the dilemma we're in? First sin, then death. And no one exempt from either sin or death. That sin disturbed relations with God in everything and everyone, but the extent of the disturbance was not clear until God spelled it out in detail to Moses. So death, listen to this, this huge abyss separating us from God. Lodabar. Dominated the landscape from Adam to Moses. Even those who didn't sin precisely as Adam did by disobeying a specific command of God still had to experience this termination of life, this separation from God. But Adam, who got us into this trouble, also points ahead to the one who will get us out. Because there's a picture here of a covenant king. There's a picture here of a king who's not content to leave his people in Lodabar. No, there's a picture of a covenant king who's going to pursue us and he's going to fetch us from death. He's going to fetch us and he's going to not only just fetch us out of Lodabar, out of the place of hiding and shame, he's going to bring us all the way to the palace. And guess what? The palace isn't even enough. He's going to then take us and he's going to not put us as a servant in the palace. He's going to seat us right there at his table. 
And it says here, wow, this is so good. Watch this. He comes to Mephibosheth and a son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David. What does Mephibosheth do? It says he bowed down to pay him honor. Wow. David said, Mephibosheth, he said, at your service, don't be afraid. Why does David say, don't be afraid? Because he thinks David's going to murder him. He's like, why else would he fetch me? Couldn't possibly be for good. Might be for his good, the establishment of his throne. So he's terrified. And David, listen to this. David said to him, for I will surely show you Hesed for the sake of your father, Jonathan, for the sake of my covenant. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Friends, Who's around the table? The family. Sons. Oh, just, it's, I'm getting excited. It's, it's Absalom. It's Abishai. There's the mighty men. There's the 30 mighty warriors of David. These guys are famous. These guys are people they wrote songs about, that they wrote stories about, that they, everyone, Lord, they had action figures if they lived in our day and age. Like this is the Marvel men, you know. You, these are like the superheroes of the day. They're sitting at David's table. And Mephibosheth, this lame beggar from Lodabar with the king's DNA who has no right to be there. He doesn't deserve to be there. But David says to him, by my covenant, love and grace, you belong here. And he puts him at the table. Picture Mephibosheth for a second, friends. I've had this image in my head all week. I cannot shake it. I just see Mephibosheth just sitting there at the table and there's, you know, there's Joab telling the story about how he just like killed 150 dudes with his own hands. And there's all these people just telling these incredible stories and they're all looking at each other and bantering and talking away and there's Mephibosheth just looking at King David with his jaw on the floor, tears streaming down his face, just being like, so much so that it's probably awkward. David at one point is probably like, dude, stop looking at me. But Mephibosheth's just like, I just can't help it, man. I do not belong here. But you've brought me here. You see, only the king can bring you out of Lodabar. Only the king can bring you out of Lodabar. This is exactly what Christ has done for us. And watch something else. You see, what does, as, as David starts to pour out blessing upon blessing upon blessing, verse 9, Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Who's heard those words before? The very king to whom they're being addressed. Oh, there's something on that. The very king who had someone say, why would you notice me? I'm a dead dog, was the very king who spoke those same words to the one who came to kill him. But this time, instead of proclaiming that to someone who's hunting him down, he hears it from someone because he's pouring out love. Friends, why does Christ come after us? Why does Christ show us so much mercy? Because he is not unfamiliar with our pain and suffering. Jesus knows what Lodabar looks like. King David, who is the picture of Christ. Jesus is the better David. 
David knew what Lodabar looked like. David lived in hiding for 15 years. David was hunted like a dog. David understood the pain of Lodabar. He understood the mercy and favour and grace of God to bring him out of Lodabar and fulfil his covenant promise to him. And now David is able to extend and show that same grace and favour and mercy to the son of his best mate who he made a covenant with. This is true of Christ. Christ is not unfamiliar with our sufferings. He suffered and died. He was spat on. He was abused. He was whipped. He had thorns shoved into his skull. He knows your suffering. He knows what it's like to be dropped. He knows it. And he knows it intimately. And because of that, when he comes to us and we say, I don't deserve to be here. He says, you know what? You don't deserve to be here, but by jingos, you belong here. Because I'm the one who's brought you out. It's not by your might, it's not by your effort, it's not by how good you sing, how good you look, how broad your shoulders are, how, what the mighty works that you've done in battle are for me. No, no, I just love you because I made a promise. Full stop, underline, highlight, exclamation mark. And because of that, I'm gonna extend chesed to you in abundance over and over and over and over again. You're gonna be seated at my table. And Mephibosheth's response is awe and wonder. And it left me hanging with a disturbing question which has grieved my soul all week. If Mephibosheth can't take his eyes off David, how is it that we so readily take our eyes off Christ? We are Mephibosheth. Every single one of us. Where's the wonder and awe? Do you realise what table you're seated at? I'm not sure we do. What we're about to do in taking communion is supposed to remind us of the table that we're seated at. It's a king's table. Wow. It's time to leave Lodabar. You see, the only reason Mephibosheth sat at that table when David fetched for him is because he said yes. He could have said no. He could have said, no, no, I'm quite happy in Lodabar. And honestly, I think that's true of our culture. I think that's true of the Western church. We've become so accustomed to Lodabar that we've forgotten that we're born for a palace. We just live in the place of shame. We just hide our shame. We come along and we pretend like life's all good, but actually God has come that we would be free. Free, 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 free. He's fetched us for freedom to eat at His table that we might spend our days in wonder and worship and awe at what He has done for us. And there is no other rightful response None. You cannot enter the king's table and just be content. It has to result in overflow and awe. It has to result in wonder and worship. It has to result in staring at the face of our king and just being like, stop. It's what mercy does. It's what mercy does. So we're going to take communion. And as we do, we're going to sing a song, and that song is called Carried to the Table. 
seated where I don't belong. He's put us there. And as we take communion, as you take the bread, as you take the drink, take a moment to wonder and worship. Take a moment. Have a Mephibosheth moment. Look around the table and realise there's no competition at the table. You're all there as sons and daughters of Christ. At the table, it doesn't matter if you can pick up a sword and swing it like Joab. It doesn't matter if you've got the broad shoulders of Absalom. It doesn't matter. At the table, everyone looks the same. And everyone's looking at Christ. He's the one who's brought us there. Everyone's eyes are on the King. The King speaks and we're attentive. Take a moment. Have a Mephibosheth moment. You've been brought to this table by a great and mighty King. And we're going to sing this song. And then as after that, get ready. We're going to pray. We're going to pray for a couple of things. Firstly, we're going to pray for people who this message has rammed home and you're like, I was dropped. And it's time to get free. You've been living in Lodabar because of the, you know, it's been with you since you're five years old. You're still carrying the shame. You're still carrying the guilt. It's time to leave Lodabar today. Okay? The king has sent his envoy, the Holy Spirit, and the envoy's picking you up, putting you on his shoulders, and he's taking you to the palace. It's time to leave Lodabar today. So get ready. We're going to pray. Prepare your heart. Don't sit in those chairs and have your heart beating and be like, oh, I'm too afraid to come down. Ah, that's fear of man. Fear of man is but a snare. You come and you get prayed for and you allow the Lord to minister to your heart. It's time to leave Lodabar. And the other thing I really want to pray for is for people who, like you're in this church and you just are struggling with that sense of belonging. You feel like you don't belong at the table. If the king put you there, he meant to put you there. He's brought you for a reason. You have value. You have purpose. And I want to speak. We want to just proclaim that worth and value into you and over you that you might be released into the call of God upon your life. Amen. So the table is open. Go as the Lord leads. We'll worship him and then we'll pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.